Hello, Trailbilly family. On this week's episode, we are interviewing Mike Davis, who is an urban theorist, a professor at University of California, Riverside, and an author of such great books like City of Courts, Planet of Slums, Victorian Holocausts, and one of my personal favorites, one about the history of the car bomb called Buddha's Wagon. Or maybe that's Buddha's Wagon. <laughs> I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Anyways, we're talking to Mike about the political economy of rural America, trying to map out some generalizations about it, its role within the larger national political structure, and why it votes the way it votes, you know, what implications we can take away from the 2020 election. So we really hope you like that because it kind of fits into the political economy category, we are putting this in our Year Zero series. So if you're sitting around this holiday weekend with nothing really else to do, and you haven't listened to the previous Year Zero episodes, I highly recommend you check them out. They're very accessible. They're funny. They're just like pretty much everything else we put out. We really think you'll like it. Two quick announcements before we get to the interview. The first is that Tom and I appeared on Chapo Trap House on their most recent Patreon episode talking about Hillbilly Elegy. So if you would like to go check that out, go to the Chapo Patreon page. We dissected the film, talked about how bad it is. Um, but if you'd like to hear the Trillbilly take on it, I believe we will be finally tackling that on next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. And finally, and most importantly, I just need to say that our co-host Aaron was involved in a car accident this week. Uh, don't worry, he is alive um, and well, but he is a little bit banged up and he's probably going to need a new car as well. So we are going to put a link to a GoFundMe for him in the description for this episode. So if you'd like to donate to him, please do so. He would really appreciate it, and he would just like me to tell you all that he's sending his warmest regards, his love, and thanks for everybody who's reached out to him. So without further ado, let's get to this interview with Mike Davis, and I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving and a great holiday weekend. distance truckers together and he was from Vietnam veterans against the war so we were vi visiting VVAW people and we went down to Harlan and the union organizers said whatever you do uh, don't go out there to the mine and we went out <laughs> anyway and uh, got a cab 
kind of beat up. And then retreated back across the railroad tracks, flipped in the finger. And I, think was, I think his name was Cecil Price, who was the scabber, opened up on us with a uh, uh, an M1 carbine. And so we raced, we raced, raced back to uh, Hazard and told this to the UMW guys. And they, yeah. they just broke up in laughter because we were so damn stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, um, yeah, no, there's, I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've seen the film. Uh, there's a great film about it. It's, uh, but, yeah. Barbara Couples film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, so. Yeah, we live about. I don't know. What do you think, Tom? So I'm, you know, I'm Terrence. This is Tom. Um, we live about maybe forty-five minutes from where that took place, give or take. It's yeah, pretty the close other here. side of Pine Mountain. I don't know if if you're familiar with Whitesburg, and it's where Apple Shop was founded. Where what was founded? Uh, where Apple Shop was founded is like it, one of those war on poverty programs, and the yeah. There's a. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it's. In the 60s, you know, when they did the War on Poverty, they had started these film cooperatives, these media cooperatives, and I think there's like five of them in the nation, and the the only one that survived to this day is right here in Whitesburg, and it's called <laughs> Apple Shop. I don't know how it survived, but... <laughs> Are you supported by the Appalachian Regional Commission or any of that? No, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> We've burned those bridges. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Now we we've written a lot about um, you know. So so Tom and I have been involved in a lot of different you know things, uh, anti mountaintop removal, you know, anti prison construction, which there's a lot of it here. But um, in the course of all those years, we've really gotten it pretty intimate with the Appalachian Regional Commission. <laughs> Uh, they they pretty much exist just to build highways at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you're uh, familiar with Eastern Kentucky, Mike. It's um, and 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 furthermore, have even visited. You know, a lot of people we talk <laughs> that's, to. That's a lot less to explain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no. Uh, so like I was saying, um, I think today we're trying to we're talking about rural America. We're we're trying to get some larger insights into what it actually is. You know how it functions, why it votes the way it votes, and I. I think most importantly, how the American left should be thinking about it and engaging with it. Um, so, I, you know, I just wanted to start off with the basics. J just in purely economic terms, you know, and excluding some of the more, you know, overt political factors, you know, for the moment. How has what we call rural America changed over the last couple of decades? And, you know, what are some of the forces that have contributed to that? Well... First of all, rural America is a, a very complicated thing to define since there are many rural Americas. And the Census Bureau hasn't helped because now any rural area that has a town with 50,000 people or more is a metropolitan county. Although, in fact, it may be, you know, largely rural. But setting that aside, I, I, I think there are three kinds of rural Americas. The one that's, I think, been decisive for Trump is exurban America. Now, lots of poor people have, you know, have left the cities and so on and moved into rural areas, particularly black people returning 
to, to the South. But the big phenomena is wealthier, conservative white people moving into rural areas with high amenity values, you know, historic towns, wine country, you know, the best bass fishing around <laughs> and, and so on. And exurban America, by Brookings Institution standards, uh, is more than 30 million people right now. Okay, so you you have this kind of exurbia of, uh, which is a kind of form of gentrification of, of rural America, but it exists side by side with tremendous poverty. And then there are the non-metropolitan counties, again, as the Census Bureau defines them, where more than 20% of the people commute to work outside that county. And that's even true in, in places like uh, central Appalachia, where, where you are. And that isn't really counted by the Census Bureau, but it's definitely rural America. And then there are finally the regions which had been devastated by a succession of economic changes. My mother is Irish, but my dad comes from the oldest, the last Welsh-speaking town in the United States, a place called Venedosia, Ohio, that uh, boasts that its smallest town, it's not a town, it's a hamlet, a crossroads, to have a website. <laughs> and I used, to, I used to go there, you know, is 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 a kid and it was very prosperous. My my great uncle won the corn prize at the Ohio State Fair. <laughs> I went back in the seventies. Yeah. And my relatives had all lost their farms. Younger people were working at non union furniture factories forty to fifty miles away. The eighties devastated these kinds of areas, which had had generations of relative stability and and Prosperity. I'm not talking about the Wheat Belt, which is a kind of a casino. It's kind of like going to Las Vegas. Uh, but the Corn Belt, you know, incredibly stable, hit in the 1980s. And you have a succession of other things. I mean, if you look at the southern Appalachian areas, the devastation wrought by the destruction of the textile industry in the last 20 years and the utter failure of both Republican and Democratic administrations to address that. And that's why you find that up to a third of the manufacturing jobs in in rural America, but particularly in that part, in the, in, in the uh, foothill belt of the Appalachians, just, you know, devastated by that. I mean, the point is, since the 1965, and the creation of the Appalachian Regional Commission by uh, the Democrats under Lyndon Johnson. I can't think of a single geographically focused initiative that's targeted poverty or instability of employment in rural America. Of course, there's a huge apparatus of policies to largely favor agribusiness and big farmers but Appalachia, for instance, is really a total orphan of the Democratic Party. It's just been, you know, abandoned. I mean, a little hard to imagine people in rural regions becoming installers of, 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 of solar energy installations or working as software where uh, 
specialists at now totally automated trucking companies. I mean, the job loss through technological change, but also through decrease in uh, national demand, it's going to take away five or ten jobs for every one of these mythical green energy jobs. Now, obviously, I think we need to make the uh, transition away from you know, fossil fuels. But there's nothing concrete here. And what everybody, whether they're in Lima, Ohio, or Erie, Pennsylvania, or Williamson, West Virginia, want to know of a candidate, is what are you going to do to create more job opportunities and economic stability in my town or my county? And Democrats have failed that, with some exceptions. But those exceptions are relatively few. And I think if you look at the Trump vote from this election, it's kind of interesting. He got about 70 million, possibly as many as 71 million votes. Increased his 2016 vote by 8.5 million or so. Polls have shown consistently from the inauguration, he's the only president who's never had favorable rating by majority Americans, only president, but he gets 40-41% absolutely hardcore. So I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation. It's not scientific, but <laughs> maybe useful. And you take the 70-71 million Trump vote and apply the 40% percentage to the total vote and, and deducted from 71%. Well, you got about 55 million people who just really seem to be the Trump hardcore. But there's another 17 million people who, who aren't. And the decisive thing about the election, and I think a principal reason for the disaster that befell Democratic congressional candidates is the Democrats allowed jobs and the pandemic to become counterposed issues, which shouldn't have happened. Whereas the Trump campaign from the beginning, starting back in late April, when he unleashed the arm-carrying mobs on state capitals, uh, demanding to liberate Wisconsin, liberate Michigan, and everything possible to counterpose that. Well, this is kind of what you know, millions of ordinary Americans have had to face. The choice between endangering themselves or their families, particularly you know, their old folks at home, and the need to pay the rent, the medical bills, to keep from becoming homeless. And so what happened at the election, I think, was out of this 15 or 17 million, however you want to calculate it, so many of these were people for whom further closures spelt economic disaster. So they made Sophie's choices, not necessarily liking Trump at all, maybe opposing him uh, and everything else. But he was able to run as the goddamn uh, jobs candidate. And Biden did very little, you know, to really counteract that. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I was telling Tom this the other day, but I was in the doctor's office here in town when they announced that Trump had lost and that um, Pennsylvania had gone for Biden and that he would now have the electoral votes to win. And I was talking to this woman who, you know, I've known for years who worked at the 
who worked at the doctor's office. And she was just totally sort of devastated, like aghast. And and this is a good person. You know, I don't consider this person to be necessarily a reactionary or a racist. I mean, maybe privately, I don't know. But she's always been very helpful to me, and I know what her thoughts are about health care and these other things. And her very first reaction to me was, um, I don't know what's going to happen to my husband. My husband's a coal miner, you know, and... And, and and I don't I don't she just had a lot of uncertainty about the future. And I think this is probably one of those people, like you said, who had to make this choice. They probably weren't really thrilled about it, uh, you know, but they weren't getting anything offered to them by the Democrats. Um, and so, you know, the, and, and I think that this person also makes up a part of, you know, earlier you differentiated three different kinds of rural America. This is this is someone who lives in a region that has been completely emptied out of its resources, you know, just stripped raw from coal and timber. And um, and also in the process emptied out of its many of its population. And so the social fabric itself has been um, disrupted. And so, um, and so, yeah, this is a person for whom electoral politics, you know, mainstream politics just doesn't have a whole lot of uh, valence unless it's in the form of someone talking about their, their job. And and so, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm just trying to kind of add a sort of anecdotal evidence to what you're saying. I feel very much like where I live and the people I talk to, um, they, they articulate on a regular basis material concerns and demands that aren't necessarily mediated by some of the more cultural war things that we're told by Democrats motivate rural voters. And and that to me is a scary situation. You know, I mean, like if these people are, are articulating material demands, but they're not being met by, they're only being met by one of these parties. And even then it's just, you know, it's, they're not actually, uh, they're doing it cynically, you know, the Republicans. To me, that seems like a sort of dangerous um, formula for the future. Well, I mean, of course the Republicans are doing theater here about right. so, I mean, one instance is when Bush ran against Kerry and look at West Virginia. Kerry went to West Virginia. He had really absolutely nothing to say about the economy. Bush went there and said, I'll put a tariff on steel. And of course, steel making was a very important part of the West Virginia economy. I mean, I think most folks, independently of even religion and ideology, you know, first of all, look at family survival, a household survival strategy that they've adopted, and then choose, as you say, who seems to respond best to, you know, the life and death needs of, of American households. And we're also talking about, I mean, the Democrats take a, you know, they look at national GDP and so on. And they're prepared to do something about poverty, particularly urban poverty. Not enough, but but something. Now, what we need are geographically targeted job creation programs, not opportunity zones, not these retraining schemes where you teach uh, coal miners to be, you know, Xerox technicians of fertility. <laughs> won't exist for a few years from now. The real targeted geographically specific economic policies controls on the movement of capital and the role of finance, particularly the piratical 
part of finance, like private equity and hedge funds that just move into community to loot everything they can in the short term from a local plant or or industry, and then you know take their profits and run, leaving the plant or industry as a failing concern. And most of all, the one thing that I haven't heard anybody talk about in the election, we need a massive expansion of public employment. And not just in Green New Deal terms. We obviously need to rebuild public health care and pay teachers better, but increase the number of teachers. A tremendous shortage of caregivers. And the private sector is not going to address that. The private sector is no longer the engine of job growth in this country. In fact, the opposite is good. And government has been so thoroughly discredited that even Democrats are afraid to imagine that. Obviously, you've got to talk about a different kind of public sector, not one that's controlled by corporations or by the industries that, say, departments are supposed to regulate who, in fact, own, own the industries. We have to talk about much higher degree of democratic, local, and you know, regional control. But otherwise, it just becomes like homelessness. It becomes an insolvable problem because it's impossible to frame solutions because of the, you know, the, the interests involved. I, I, talk, I have four kids. My two younger kids are just finishing high school. And uh, they were amazed when I told them that I remember when homelessness basically did not exist in this country. It's been so naturalized, taken, uh, you know, for granted. And likewise, with the distress of rural America, including uh, Native America, including the plight of uh, small black farmers in the Mississippi Delta and so on, or uh, people who live in the border counties of Texas, uh, New Mexico. Yeah. You know, once again, earlier, you had distinguished these sort of, you know, three different kinds of rural America, and we're talking about one of them. I wanted to talk about a different one, though, that has risen just in the last couple of decades and seems to be, you know, earlier you pointed out these sort of maybe 50 million hardcore Trump voters. This seems to be a large slice of that pie. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm referring to what you referred to as exurbia. Can you talk a little bit about what the exurbs are and, and what... What gave rise to them and their relationship to the geography around them? Well, exurbs are the kind of highest stage of sprawl. And let me give you an example from right here in San Diego County. I grew up in what's called East County, an area that I, I've met people who use CSD tell me they won't even get off the freeway in that area. It's so associated with being, you know, redneck and, and conservative. Right. I grew up on the last, literally the last suburban street before the countryside began, where my parents, who fled Ohio during the Depression, ended up owning a little avocado orchard. And the East County area, you know, were, there were people who kept horses, people who came from rural places and wanted some of it. Uh, and, biker bars and, you know, little crossroads places. 
today, and uh, this is a mountainous area, where if you go up a thousand feet or more, you have magnificent views of the coast 30 or 40 miles away. It's now chock-a-block with McMansions because for a million dollars, you can hardly buy anything on the coast. But for a million dollars in the backcountry, you can build mansions. And I mean really huge homes, up to 5,000 square feet. There are even a couple of castles in areas where <laughs> I used to take my 22 with my friends and, you know, hunt jack, uh, rabbits. But then if you go further out at an inconvenient distance, there's still working class communities. People can't afford to live in the city. They live out there. And that includes um, people I, uh, I grew up with and still stay in contact. My ex-brother-in-law is a retired firefighter. And the change out there has also been dramatic, but in a different sense. The in-your-face racism, the total domination by conservative right-wing uh, conspiracy theories. And I remember not too long ago, last year, talking to a young woman who worked for the state park out there. Her husband is Mexican. And uh, they were fleeing the area, the community called Descanso, because, you know, they've had their tires slashed, vandalized, been right in their face threatened with violence because he's an immigrant. And there's always racism in these areas. But now Trump is allowed it all to rise to the surface and become public. So even in this microcosm, in a place, uh, an area that you consider, well, everybody lives at the beach and stuff. But in fact, the American West starts about 40 miles from the ocean. So you have this combination of you know, incredibly upscale, affluent people. And then a little further out, what's always been considered our local version of, of, of Appalachia. And you can see this everywhere across the country. I mean, there are a few instances where the excerpts are, you know, liberal. Right. You know, Asheville, North Carolina, Mendocino, California. And by the way, exurban growth is the most dynamic and, and the largest on scale in the South is middle class people or upper middle class people move to, you know, attractive rural areas. And of course, in a large part, this is just another, this is the kind of highest form of white flight with other people who they have the same prejudice as, as you do. There's a book that was written in 2008 called The Big Sort about this process. Oh, yeah. We know the author, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know Bishop. Yeah, I used to work for Bill Bishop. Very interesting book. Yeah, no. Um, so the process, I guess, that you're outlining, that you're saying here, is that, yeah, you have these affluent upper class, upper middle class and upper class people, you know, fleeing the cities and the suburbs themselves and creating these communities that uh, have a relationship to the countryside, but maybe maybe in some cases it is more material maybe in some cases it's more it's more cultural right but but regardless it gets all sort of sorted into the same rural umbrella yeah and it tends to displace the productive economies of rural areas you know right uh, 
it displaces farmers. I mean, you look across the western United States and in all the fishing towns on the west coast and all the mining towns in the interior west, local productive activities and jobs have collapsed, but in turn making those communities very attractive for people who can take their inflated coastal equity, you know, real estate, and either buy a second home or move to these kind of places. So you get this sometimes intense conflict between the, uh, the in-mine migrants who are much wealthier than the kind of left-behind uh, working-class people for whom the, I mean, in your part of the country, in uh, Pennsylvania and South Texas, of course, fracking came, sort of came to the rescue uh, in a lot of places. But what's happened out here, and you were mentioning this about Eastern Kentucky, so maybe I'm not so, so right to say this is a mainly Western phenomenon, but the one replacement job source is, of course, been prison construction. Yeah, definitely. And so people who were once proud copper miners or ranchers or, you know, fishermen find the only real living available is working at uh, uh, is prison guards. And, of course, that's true in South Texas and in other Latino border counties where often ICE is the only high-wage employer in town. Do you think that happens, Mike, because they tend to they tend to try to place those projects in places where there's not a ton of political organization. Tax, tax bases are small. I mean, it's kind of like landfills, right? It's like they, it's the kind of like sort of junk projects they sort of just dump on this that like, you know, people in the city might, you know, put up a big like NIMBY style fight against or something like that. Yes, of course. You're absolutely right. And particularly in communities which have no other available source of replacement employment, particularly since the the loss of this one-third of the manufacturing jobs that were situated in rural counties or uh, uh, semi-rural areas. And uh, I'll never forget, I I did a tour years ago and wrote an article about a desert prison in a place called Calipatria out by the Salton Sea in Southern California. And some of the guards were just absolute Nazis. But I started talking to a couple of young Chicano guys, and they explained, well, you know, I went to junior college, but this is agriculture. There aren't any future here. You know, but my family's here and so on. So I became a prison guard, and I hate it, and it's dangerous. You know, and I feel I'm almost evil doing doing the job. But, hey, you know, what are the... Uh, you know, what are the alternatives? Of course, the military has long represented uh, uh, that as well, which is why there's such a high disproportion of people from poor areas of the country uh, in the military. But nothing is going to get better, uh, you know, from this point forward. And the job losses that are now going to occur, I mean, you look at trucking, some experience uh, <laughs> being a trucker, and you go in a truck stop anywhere. Half the guys you talk to are small farmers, you know, 
keeping the form by spending 280 days a year uh, out on the road. Uh, uh, and those jobs are eliminated, as it certainly seems to be the case within the next decade. I mean, it's disastrous. I mean, they, I, I forget. I think there's 3 million uh, owner-operators uh, in the country. And because so many of them are tethered to rural places, uh, the loss of this job would be absolutely uh, uh, disastrous. And of course, what are the ultimate effects? Well, we all know so well, you know, it's diseases of despair. It's the fact that in uh, Appalachia, at least in central and southern Appalachia, 50% of low-skilled men are out of the labor force. 50% yeah. of those uh, are, are disabled. Uh, job losses in these areas uh, are major public health uh, uh, problem. But who can provide the jobs if not the, the public sector in one form or another? And of course, the whole enterprise opportunity zone stuff is just a way of, of pitting places against one another. Uh, yeah, and so you build, you know, say you build a big auto plant in in uh, in, in Tennessee. They give away the tax revenue for the next generation, uh, undercutting other places uh, uh, to get it. It's it's ridiculous. I I think the um, <laughs> if you look at the sort of march of time. Uh, and how the Opportunity Zone has evolved over time. So Opportunity Zone was a Clinton initiative, right? I think it started in the 90s. Um, under Obama, Obama had a similar one called Promise Zones. So it yeah. kind of gets more dystopian over time. It's like, it's, it's opportunity and, and it's promise. Under Biden, it'll probably something be something even more bleak. Um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that when they sent the Promise Zones bureaucrat down here to eastern Kentucky yeah. to to basically throw this sort of pep rally, right? Because we, yeah. know, we were announced as one of the Promise Zones counties. And she had like the whole like Tony Robbins like ear like microphone earbud piece thing in and she was like in this like restaurant and everybody's there and I remember her saying, There's something exciting going on in eastern Kentucky. What is it? And everybody's like prison 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 and i just thought to myself <laughs> we're throwing a goddamn pep rally for a proposed prison and that's going to like solve all of our woes and it was the just the darkest thing you could imagine you know? <laughs> well, I mean, in these these kind of uh tax subsidized places of course stimulate job flight within the united states from one place to another. If they help one rural community or small industrial city, it's taking away jobs from a similar place uh, uh, elsewhere. And, uh, you know, this idea that kind of economic Darwinism will solve the problems of uh, working class Americans, I mean, it's just crazy. It's a huge giveaway of... Uh, fiscal resources, and largely companies that don't need it. I mean, why did VW in Chattanooga uh, meet all these uh, uh, tax breaks 
for example. Right. They're going to build the wall yeah. somewhere anyway, but the present system allows them to launch this bidding war between uh, uh, localities. And there are a thousand examples of that, particularly in the south and the southeast, both in parts of the Midwest. We had, we had, it's not a one-to-one, but I think one of the biggest things that people sort of in the NGO world here have been working on for like the last several years is really pining for this thing called the Reclaim Act, which would basically release some funds out of the abandoned mine, federal abandoned mine lands fund and like redistribute it to you know parts of East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, Southwest Virginia, so forth. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks, just when you said like the idea of pitting regions against the country against each other, one of the biggest stumbling blocks to this is Wyoming's congressional rec- representatives are like, well, hell no, we're not going to do this. Wyoming's had the most productive coal field in the country for the last 15, 20 years, and they've put like a lot into this. And it's like, you know, not saying that anybody in Appalachia or Central Appalachia or whatever doesn't deserve to, you know, have some of those funds redistributed or whatever, but it's right when you're talking about that sort of pitting, even with public things like that. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's worse than a um, dying industry like coal. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, one power that we have is if localities and states, I shouldn't say localities, let's say states and the federal government use the power they have on the spatial location of public investments. That would be, you know, an important instrument down on the um, on the local or uh, regional scale. In so many places, also in the areas we're talking about, the, the major replacement industry turns out to be healthcare. I I spent some time part of the summer in Birmingham, Alabama, back in the uh, in the 1980s. Friends who worked in a in steel and a soap factory. You go to Birmingham today. That's all, you know, all gone. But it's become a big regional healthcare center. And of course, your area is starved of, of healthcare investment or it's private health care and things like these these nursing homes owned by private equity where a hundred thousand people have now died of covid so there is something that government can do in terms of how it geographically allocates investment and with a preference for areas of high unemployment poor areas that's you know that's obviously not a solution but it's important unused power that the public sector has, depending on who controls the public public sector. Yeah, I grew up in southeastern New Mexico in a little oil town called Hobbs. And just about an hour away in West Texas, there was a little town called New Deal. You know, and there's all kinds of little towns like that in West Texas that were, you know, that benefited from the New Deal. And, you know, their politics were sort of oriented around that. I mean... This has kind of been the story of maybe the 20th century, and I kind of kind of think that it sort of explains why there's kind of this industry now in the sort of punditry world, in the commentariat world, where <clears throat> people try to explain really what's happening in rural America. I mean, because as we were saying, 
a lot of these, you know, this is kind of the subtext here. A lot of these places, whether it's um, some of those more agricultural regions in West Texas or here, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, these places were Democratic strongholds, you know, up until fairly recently. And, and you know, and so they've slowly, gradually started going Republican in the last maybe three or four decades. As a result, there's kind of been... Um, this rise of, like I was saying, sort of rural explainers. One of them is Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas? Um, you know, I, I think there's some correct things in it, and I think there's also some things it gets wrong. I mean, wh- why do you think, wh- what's, what explains um, some of these political changes, and what are some of the arguments that people sort of employ to try to understand them? Well, I actually wrote a reply <laughs> I really like Tom Frank's stuff, but I wrote a reply to to that book called What's the Matter with West Virginia, uh-huh. looking at the vacuity of democratic proposals or ideas about saving declining regions. Some of Frank's data, by the way, is, doesn't bear up under close inspection. I mean, his thesis, of course, is that you have all these people voting against their e- direct economic interest and class interest when they vote for Republicans. And he gives the example of these counties in uh, 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 western Kansas, also uh, in Nebraska, that have these what seem to be incredibly low uh, low incomes, but are almost 100% Republican. But if you look at what these counties really are, we're talking about big ranchers who are living on drought subsidies and taking huge tax uh, donation. They're not voting against their economic, uh, right. you know, interests at all. Right. And now, now we have a kind of uh, second or third generation Moynihanism. Uh, Daniel Moynihan was the conservative Democratic senator from New York, who blamed uh, poverty in the inner, inner cities on the collapse of the black family and the corresponding. Uh, failures of character that that supposedly created uh, in younger black people. Now we have hillbilly elegies, right. uh, which I guess hundreds of thousands of urban people now take as God's truth. <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, about Appalachia and, and, and rural America, but you're blaming the people themselves. Uh, Charles Murray, one of the most uh, noxious uh, conservative writers. Uh, no accident he and J.D. Vance are now colleagues at the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs> indeed, but now now he talks about, he says, well, these uh, poor white Americans are becoming like urban blacks. The right. black all motivation, self-discipline. I mean, this takes it right back to the 19th century middle-class depictions of working people. I mean, I think one of the great heroic untold stories of the last generation or two has been the heroic persistence of people in places that they love. People who could move, but but don't. You know, who get by and far less because they're not going to be driven out of the mountains or, you know, away from local local area areas that are so rich in 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 heritage and the character factor is probably the opposite of what people like uh, 
Murray are talking about. I mean, you're talking about some of those, you know, rugged, resourceful, creative people in American society. I saw that also. I'm most of my. I'm the only native Californian in my family. I have a huge working class family, six adult nieces and nephews, and an endless number of exes and children and so on. We uh, live in Washington, and uh, the kind of traditional working class in Washington uh, is, you know, is a model of that. Uh, if the pulp mill closes, well, you go fishing in Alaska. If that falls through, you try, you know, to try something else. So the depiction of people who aren't able to make um, smart economic choices because they supposedly don't have disciplined uh, uh, characters, that's the opposite of the truth. I mean, the large parts of this country have been held together simply by the, you know, the desperate creativity uh, of, of people. But the resources for that are running out including the resources for uh, uh, regional migration. I mean, Las Vegas is a, it's almost like a sedimentary geological deposit. Each strata records a uh, recession in some part of the country. The oldest stratum, people from Butte, Montana, who came in the 50s after the collapse of, uh, of, of, of mining. There's a huge stratum of people who fled the steel valleys. Uh, and I never forget, I worked a little with the Culinary Workers Union and went around visiting workers uh, at home. They were trying to organize the MGM Grand, which they eventually succeeded. But I remember talking to one woman, and she said, well, we were third generation steel workers, but when the mill closed down in North Pittsburgh, we eventually lost everything. So we moved to Texas because everybody said go to Texas and get jobs. Went to Texas. Our marriage almost broke up. My husband started drinking. So finally we came here. And because the casinos are unionized in the hotels, now, you know, we have a decent income again and just uh, put a down payment on a house. But she says, I don't get it. He says, in Pittsburgh, we made things, useful things. We could see ourselves as, as part of this huge, productive American economy. What do we make here in uh, <laughs> uh, Las Vegas? And there's millions of people who have asked that question. In an economy where 80% of the jobs uh, in the private sector or in services of one kind or another, yeah, I used to live in Las Vegas, and and that was one of the things that happened. Like nobody would go, be a teacher or any you know or any of these sort of professional jobs or anything else because you could just make more money parking cars on the strip, and they were unionized jobs and but, so forth. But thanks to to a union, if if you uh, went somewhere uh, uh, else where the casinos and hotels aren't organized, this is entirely. Different story. Entirely different uh, story. I mean, Las Vegas is fascinating. Each of those casinos has a workforce equivalent to a medium-sized uh, industrial factory or, you know, or auto plant. And the working conditions are not that uh, uh, greatly different. Same way 
same way in the uh, you know the healthcare industry. Uh, one of my kids was asking me, "Well, there really isn't a working class anymore in America because there aren't the factories." And I said, "You know, I, I've been fighting cancer. I've been on, made a couple hundred visits to uh, clinics and hospitals in the last couple of years, and a big hospital, you know, is the equivalent." Of, of a factory has same kind of social conscious. And one of the things we've seen this year is the tremendous politicalization of the healthcare sector that creates 70%, 17% uh, of the jobs in this sector. The most progressive union in the country right now, arguably uh, 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 Nurses United. So there are, I mean, other focuses for traditional un union organization and fight back. But finally, in your region, of course, the th one of the things that uh, has unleashed support for Trump has been the defeat of union organization in the southern auto industry, given that most of the foreign automakers are located uh, in places like uh, Tennessee and, you know, Mississippi, South South Carolina and kind of half the American auto industry are now in right to work states. And uh, UAW is organizing uh, uh, campaigns. I think a lot of what happened is dictated by the history of, uh, of, of failed trade unionism uh, in these places. Because even if you go to look at, and after the 2016 election, I picked 15 industrial counties in the Midwest that had voted for Obama, but then shifted to uh, uh, to Trump. And I showed in every case, I went back and read all the local newspapers for a couple of years. And in each case, it correlated to major job losses and continuing plant closures. But what was in interesting, and it's the same in this election, is the Trump vote is much higher than the Republican vote on a local le level. People are still Democrats on a local level, particularly voting for Democrats who are, uh, you know, who are, who are pro-union. So this isn't the kind of wholesale, you know, uh, full immersion conversion experience that seems to be happening at other uh, parts of uh, of, of Trumpton. This is a, you know, a conditional phenomena, you know, dictated by fairly realistic calculations, I think. I mean, better to have somebody who at least talks about uh, uh, controlling the export of, uh, of jobs and reindustrialization than somebody who just doesn't get it at all. Now we see that Biden's actually uh, taken on a lot of... Uh, Trumpian ideas about, uh, uh, you know, trade and, 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 and productions. This last election, I, I think in, in 100 years, I don't think any election, the profile of labor movements, uh, been smaller or more marginal, despite the heroic work that various local unions did in, in key, key parts of uh, of the country. So you have to cast a lot of the phenomena that's occurring in terms of um, 
de-unionization. But it's not just, you know, the Democrats here or urban liberals, middle-class liberals who don't get it. You see this thing across Western Europe where former red belts, bastions of, of, of the left and of unionism, have turned to parties to the far right, the north of England, the uh, north of France, uh, Lombardy and Italy, eastern parts of Germany, and, and so on. I mean, these include areas that had communist governments, local governments, for, or socialist local governments for 50 or six, 60 years after 1945. And now in the grip of Le Pen and various other uh, right-wing demagogues who do offer what seem to be solutions to regional decline. I mean, they, they talk the language about it. And of course, they pin the blame on exactly the wrong people, poor immigrants and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's earlier we were talking about Harlan County. I mean, it's uh, if you were to tell somebody that communists were organizing in Harlan County in the 30s with the National Mining Union and that they had a substantial base there, too. I mean, I think you would blow people's minds. I mean, there's nothing inherently conservative or or, or left or whatever about a region and it's seclusion or, or whatever. I, I think it just uh, depends on, you know, how active the workforce is there and, and um, the, I don't know, the organizations on the ground and who's doing the organizing. I mean, I think that is is an interesting question because, I, I, you know, maybe this gets a little too much into theory or something, but I guess one of the questions I have and maybe the left in general has is, like, how should the left be thinking about about rural areas. I mean, as I mentioned in one of my questions to you, I think the left has always kind of had a bit of a troubled relationship with the rural areas. I mean, granted, Marx was writing in the 19th century when he wrote that, you know, when he basically said the peasants were a sack of potatoes, more or less. But, I mean, is that still the case today, or, or can the left still engage with these areas in a way that... Um, I don't. I don't know. Uh, makes their political affiliation not such a foregone conclusion, so to speak. Well, to go back to the classical period of socialism between roughly 1880 and 19, and the beginning of this uh, of the Second World War, this is a huge debate among socialist parties. Their attitude toward the countryside and toward peasants and small farmers, and you ended up with two entirely different models. You had the Orthodox Marxists in Germany and Austria-Hungary, uh, who basically proposed state ownership and offered nothing, even to the most radicalized uh, parts of their countryside, to peasants. But in southern France, the roots of uh, socialism, the power of local socialism, and famous socialist leaders like Jean Jaurès, uh, Lay amongst uh, small wine growers, you know, amongst uh, radicalized uh, peasants. Similarly in Italy, the, the most radical group of all uh, at the time of fascism in Italy were not the auto workers and uh, Fiat and Turin and so on, as militant as they were. But it was small peasants and farm laborers uh, 
this is one of the main goals of Mussolini was to smash their unions and uh, uh, you know destroy their power. So if you look back at traditional Marxist uh, views of the countryside or, or, or rural areas, uh, you need to factor in this this rich and complex debate that it, that's occurred and all the counterexamples to show that radical movements can take root in these areas. Of course, American history is rich in that. Farmers Nonpartisan right. League, uh, you know, in the Dakotas, the Farmer Labor Party in uh, 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 Minnesota. But I think urban people are so far removed from uh, memory of rural roots, have so little experience. Uh, the big exception of uh, I see my own Mexican family. I mean, uh, so many Mexican people are still tied to to a village or a place or in a hito. They have uh, strong ties to the countryside in the way that people who fled the uh, the Great Plains and Depression became uh, aircraft workers in Southern California. Uh, uh, still kept touch with. Uh, uh, with Oklahoma I thought during uh, Occupy and I wrote about this my wife and I went out and joined Occupy Old Central Imperial County where Old Central is is the most semi-feudal county in uh, California you know large farms uh, which have used violence over the decades to resist unionization and a low-wage workforce that has always the highest unemployment rates in California. Well, there was an Occupy uh, El Centro, and I thought the great potential of the movement was not its growth in big urban centers, but the fact that little groups were springing out all over the country in small towns and uh, rural places. We've also seen that with Black Lives Matter, uh, in places you wouldn't expect to see uh, support, uh, groups, you know, groups have emerged and sometimes, uh, you know, suffered uh, 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 repression uh, because of it. Small minorities. I mean, there's no red, no red part of America, uh, except for white Alabama, perhaps, uh, where there isn't some core of of movement and activism, it's just those places never get the resources. And the most dramatic example of that is, of course, in South Texas, particularly in the seven uh, uh, populous uh, uh, border counties where the Democrats have totally neglected. And now everybody's wringing their hands over how tr well Trump did and South Texas, and maybe it's because they all work for ICE or something. But Bernie Sanders swept that whole area. Right. 600,000 votes down there, thanks to a movement of, uh, you know, young Tejanos and, and, and their families. Sanders' politics detonated a kind of uh, social consciousness and, and, and activism that Biden absolutely uh, failed to do, but the Democrats didn't ever, I mean, it's hardly spent a cent in areas like that. So that's why I think you have to talk about, 
you know, the places that uh, the Democratic Party has made into its own orphans, whether that's uh, Puerto Rico or Appalachia or uh, border counties. The Republicans don't tend to do that. They tend to run a candidate everywhere. And they have a parallel network of, uh, of uh, free enterprise, uh, free market think tanks, and ALEC, the American legislative thing, that pressed uh, policy that's given to Republican state legislators. And they have, of course, the Koch-funded Americans for prosperity. And Democrats have nothing like that on a... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a state level, and seem to uh, uh, not get, in any sense, the what was once proposed as the fifty-state strategy, if not to leave any Democrat uh, behind and build in rural places and declining uh, in industrial places. Republicans are there. The Democrats only show up in a national election. Yeah, I mean, in 2016 and this year, I mean, I saw, you know, a, a not insubstantial number of Bernie bumper stickers and yard signs here where we live, you know. I've never seen it. I, n not once in 2016 did I see a Hillary Clinton bumper sticker <laughs> or anything, you know. it's And it's the same with 2020. I may have seen a one or two Biden stickers. But, you know, it's it's... It was very clear that Bernie was articulating something that actually resonated. You know, are you familiar with Charles Booker, Mike? Have you ever heard that name? Remind me. He ran in the primary. here. So in Kentucky this year, uh, Mitch McConnell was up for re-election. And in the Democratic primary against, it was Amy McGrath who eventually went on to run. She was running against this insurgent left candidate named Charles Booker who he was black, he was from Louisville, and he was running, in my opinion, a very uh, fascinating campaign. I believe he called his campaign the Holler to the Hood, or the Hoods of the Holler, right, Tom? I mean, basically linking yeah. the urban you know, areas, the exploitation of people in ur urban areas with the rural areas, and, um, and he almost won. I mean, he surged pretty late, but he came within only about five or 6,000 votes of winning that primary. Yeah, Amy McGrath had raised at that point 53 million to his 800,000 and and she narrowly beat him. <laughs> of course she went on to lose to Mitch McConnell by 21 points. <laughs> well, I mean we also saw that in the fact that uh, on a state level progressive initiatives uh won with the Democrats lost. I mean the most surprising example is in Florida where a $15 minimum wage got 60% of the vote. And, of course, uh, Biden lost it by a dramatic uh, uh, reduction in, in, in previous votes. But there's another question here I'd just like to briefly outline, and that's the nature of, of the left itself, and also of unions, because obviously kids who have the support of family incomes or college degrees that allow them uh, to easily transition back to well-paying jobs, they tend to suck up all the oxygen uh, 
in movements. I've seen this particularly in trade union movement, uh, where college uh, graduate organizers gain the most mobility in full-time union posts and end up dominating them rather than the accession of uh, uh, grassroots workers, uh, you know, the actual uh, workforce. Same problem on the left. I mean, the great energy out there has been amongst uh, working class kids and first generation immigrant uh, uh, college graduates. My two kids, younger kids, identify as Mexican good in inner city high school. And while it may be predictable, given the home environment, that they would lean to the love, what's astonishing is how radical their friends are, who are parents of Somali taxi cab drivers or uh, Mexican immigrant landscapers, uh, and so on. And these kids you know, love Bernie Sanders. But I could not convince them to uh, that it was a good idea to vote for Biden. In fact, I felt like a Menshevik arguing to the Bolsheviks in my, <laughs> in, in my house. But the future of the left depends so much on building organizations of organizers that create niches for poorer kids to become organizers and to make uh, uh, full-time commitments um, uh, to the struggle. And that's really an internal question the left has to face in a direct and honest way. In other words, the, the leadership needs to look more like uh, uh, the base. And one of the things about AOC that everybody loves is, you know, she's really reflective of of her base. I mean, she comes from more or less the same socioeconomic background. And that's, you know, almost astonishing in modern American uh, politics, particularly in national level uh, uh, politics. So we have to do everything possible uh, to create new ways to basically subsidize full-time uh, organizing commitments from local people uh, and uh, younger poor uh, uh, poor people, whether they're in the inner city or in the hollows. I love that slope, yeah. boy. It's, it was great. <laughs> like I said, I was we were pretty shocked and, and pleasantly surprised that he almost won. I mean, that, but that's that to me is incredible. You've got this establishment candidate Amy, Amy McGrath that Chuck Schumer and ever and all the Democratic establishment publicly backed against Booker the insurgent candidate and he still came within a pretty good shot of beating her um, and the difference and, and why he did so well in eastern Kentucky just the summer before I don't know if you saw Mac where the Harlan County miners had blocked the coal trains from from you know taking coal out of Harlan County Booker was right there with him you know, before he was a national entity or, or anything like that. And I think that's was I think he sort of tapped into making those connections between poor, mostly white people in the hollers of Appalachian, Eastern Kentucky and, you know, poor black folks on the west end of Louisville, you know, that to places that actually don't look too dissimilar, uh, if you were to visit both of them, you know, just blindfolded. But uh yeah, it was powerful. Yeah, I mean that's that's what a generation ago the Jesse Jackson's first rainbow 
coalition presidential primary, she showed amazing ability to win both uh, people in the ghetto, but Midwestern industrial workers under the, the, the threat of job loss. Um, Sanders, of course, has repeatedly uh, uh, demonstrated that. Uh, I mean, the whole question of racism is, of course, uh, something we need to look at in, in a kind of more analytic and, and uh, scientific way. I mean, certainly Trump is tapped into uh, a deep reservoir of white supremacy. But on the other hand, if you look at counties that voted for Obama, including in 2012, the flip to Trump, it's not immediate obvious that uh, the white workers in those counties who changed the vote uh, did so as part of a racist backlash, like the 68 Wallace vote, or uh, the, the Reagan Democrats in uh, the early 1980s. And I think one thing that gives you hope is that if you go to places like, uh, oh, I don't know, Dubuque, Iowa, Stockton, California, you see poor kids of every race and ethnicity uh, running together. You know, white kids have been totally in the rap for 20, uh, you know, for full full generation with, with black friends. And I think the generation that my kids belong to, Generation uh, Z, I guess it's uh, 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 called, are going to be the most uh, astonishing in, in that regard. And far more radical, because they have to be radical. Their life situations um, dictated. Kids want radical reform, or they want support you. They understand the need for, you know, deep, profound, structural uh, change in, in the economy. There's not been a generation like this, at least since the CIO generation of the, of, of the 1930s. And I'm sure that's true uh, in a lot of uh, places in so-called red states as well. Yeah, I, we've definitely seen that and experienced it. I'm, I'm wondering... And maybe we can just start wrapping it up. But I'm wondering, like, this is the question I keep coming back to. And over the course of 2020, I kept coming back to watching Bernie's campaign unfold and watching Charles Booker's campaign unfold here. Do if these candidates and if these policies are actually going to become resonant in these areas, for, and if furthermore, even more importantly, if we're talking about building institutions that can facilitate the rise of leadership that is more reflective of the base do you have to articulate some kind of politics that is different and maybe even go so far as to say oppositional to the democratic party i mean or or or, or is there still space within that dynamic to um, pull the party to the left or the only reason i ask is because where i live i feel like as you were saying earlier, I definitely feel like it's true in terms of local elections. People still will vote for Democrats every now and then. But I do feel like in terms of national politics where I live, the word Democrat is becoming poison. That, that they're, so, they're becoming so far disillusioned from them that 
I'm not sure if you'd be able to pull them back in. Um, and so I wonder if you have to articulate something that is different or outside of it in maybe even antagonistic to it. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, I think the principal historical uh, principal lesson we should draw from 150 years of uh, American history, it's impossible to convert the Democratic Party into an instrument of social liberation. Uh, the whole idea of social Democrats eventually becoming the majority in the party uh, is is an illusion, which I don't think is held by a lot of the people who voted for Sanders or the squad. And the squad people uh, themselves seem to have a very problematic estimate of the ability, their ability to maneuver inside the party. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't support Democrats. I mean, uh, a smart person always, if given a choice between their enemies, uh, will always select the, you know, uh, uh, the lesser evil. But the problem with political campaigns is the excitement and the energy of mobilization dissipates after the uh, 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 the election's over. I mean, we've seen this again and again. And you cannot afford, once people are, are, are roused and in movement and in struggle, you cannot afford to uh, see wholesale uh, demoralization. And that's why struggles in the workplace uh, and in the community, there's solidarity movements, okay, have an enduring value to keep uh, uh, people active and, and political conscious that uh, campaigns never have. Now, the problem uh, after Super Tuesday was the Sanders campaign had always portrayed itself as two, two equal tracks running parallel to one another. The movement in the streets in unions, Black Lives Matter on one hand, <coughs> excuse me, and then the, you know, the primary campaign on the other. But after Super Tuesday, when, when Bernie conceded, uh, there's no call to mobilize back, uh, back in the streets. And not only, it wasn't only because of the pandemic, but everything became focused on the Democratic Party. And in what I think was the, his biggest mistake ever was when the uh, Sanders delegates entered into these negotiations with the Biden camp over the 2020 Democratic platform. They ceded uh, Medicare for all, which in light of the pandemic, uh, I mean, was the worst possible decision Right. One was unnecessary. After the concession by Sanders, I mean, you thousands of people would have just, you know, dropped off uh, and became inactive, except that Black Lives Matter came to the rescue and recycled right. a lot of that energy. But now we're facing a very similar situation, particularly as the Biden's appointments and so on become more and more... Um, disappointing is is losing the you know the cadre the, uh, the organizational uh, 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 network 
which needs to be, you know, reoriented to, you know, ongoing uh, uh, movements. But as I say, those movements have to be capable of supporting people from uh, the base and encouraging them to become full-timers or deeply involved uh, 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 part-timers. And I don't see much indication on a large part of the lot, uh, whether it's, you know, DSA or, or other groups, that they really give proper attention to the sociological and class composition of the left itself. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, and I, you know, I say this because I'm, I feel kind of disconnected from the left in many ways. I mean, we run this podcast and it has a pretty big following among the left, but I also live in Eastern Kentucky where there's not a lot of left organization. And so it's just a few of me and my leftist friends. And so, um, I, I feel that I feel in some ways like I'm on the outside looking in and I feel, um, yeah, that there's not that kind of sort of reflection and, and attempt to bring in, you know, some of the areas like the ones that I live in. But I get, at the same time, I guess that's probably on me and Tom as well in some ways. That's incumbent upon us. But it's a, it's a, it's just a weird time, um, you know, for the left to be sorting itself out. We happen to be in the middle of a massive crisis. You know, it's just, it's weird, like, the left was in this process of building itself back up into something formidable, and then this crisis hit, and it's like, well, we're just constantly trying to find our footing now, <laughs> so it's, well, I don't know, it's a... Of course, because, you know, sometime in late February or March, people went to bed in the year 2020 and woke up in the year 1932, right. and we needed... Uh, an organizing strategy that builds a bridge between the social democratic demands of uh, Sanders' campaign and, and the perception of its uh, possibility before, and one that deals with the extreme economic conditions uh, of today and certainly of, of you know the next couple years and maybe whole uh, uh, generation. And uh, I'm often asked by people, well, what should, what should be uh, our hope? Where do you find hope? And uh, the question never makes sense to me. Um, I don't think hope's a scientific term. I think <laughs> anger and grit and, you know, and love are what propel and keep people uh, inside uh, struggles. But is the existing left in any way prepared to deal with the depression that's enveloped at least a large part of the uh, of the country and not going to uh, recede in any foreseeable, uh, you know, uh, recession? I mean, the point is to to be on the side of and to be receptive of. Uh, how working people understand the world and what their needs are. Uh, I'm always amazed. I have friends in San Francisco, for instance, who've never met a Republican. They have never had a personal conversation. <laughs> half, half my bloody family are uh, uh, 
Republicans. Some Same of them, here. Some of them voted, yeah. came around and voted for Obama. It was a great day when that happened. But now are back, uh, particularly my uh, nephews, who are now probably uh, Trump supporters uh, uh, again. And they're not just driven by fads or listening to uh, uh, clear communications, radio, and so on. But they keep trying to recalculate what it is they believe and how that corresponds to uh, their economic situation. They live up in uh, kind of the greater Seattle area, but aren't part of the, you know, the software uh, economy. They worked in air freight and for uh, for Boeing, uh, which is a totally different reality now with a lot of uh, you know job job decline. And so many of the uh, categories we use to analyze current reality are just too vague and, uh, you know, abstract, which is why it's so important to listen to people like you two guys who know your, your communities and your region and see the complexity of how uh, people understand their situation and act on it and the possibilities uh, that exists for uh, 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 radical change, but commitment should never depend on a specific quotient of hope or uh, on the outcome of, of an election. It should be a defining character trait uh, and the way it's always been in previous generations of uh, American class fighters and uh, activists. Well, I think that's a really good spot to go out on <clears throat> um and you know thank you uh you know for taking time out of your day to talk with us mike uh yeah mike this was great thank you I, so much um, it's it's my pleasure and uh keep me in contact with what's what's going on <laughs> yeah for sure um, kentucky i i actually been there several times and uh I, I just kind of fell in love with the toughness of of, of, of people, and uh, uh, it would be nice to occasionally hear hear more about what you guys are doing. So, best of luck. Well, we we will definitely keep you in touch, Mike, and um, and thank you so much for your writing and analysis. Do you have anything you want to? I know you got a new book out. Do you want to plug it before you go? Well, uh, John Weiner. Uh, uh, who's one of the editors of the Nation? And I wrote an 800-page history of LA in the 60s. That's a movement, <laughs> and good. Sometimes in almost microscopic detail, but it was an attempt to have a conversation with under 30 activists today, because some of the major issues of the 60s are exactly the same issues people are fighting about today. So activists seem to really uh, enjoy that book. And then I have uh, a republication of a book I wrote 15 years ago on avian flu with a new long introduction uh, on coronavirus. And it was originally titled The Monster at the Door. It's now titled The Monster uh, Enters. But I'm not encouraging anybody to buy my books. Uh, <laughs> 
it's always a death sentence to have your books like on a college curriculum. Good books should be diversity of things that you find by accident, like I did when I was 14 and found Bound for Glory in the local library. Check your local libraries for my yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> or if you happen to just slip on a banana peel and, you know, land in the <laughs> radical bookstore, yeah. <laughs> check them out. Um, well, thanks again, Mike, and uh, we will definitely keep you in touch. And, um, you know, we will look forward to speaking with you again. And uh, stay safe out there, my friend. Okay. All power to the hollers. <laughs>